Just a warning that this episode does get quite heavy. If you ever need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death and dying, love, grief and hope. On our show, we talk to all kinds of people who through various trajectories have found themselves trying to explain the unexplainable. Trying to accept the unacceptable. Trying to make sense of chaos. I started working around domestic violence or anti-domestic violence advocacy, I suppose you'd call it, um, following the murder of my younger sister, Nikita. So she was uh, 23 in 2015 when she was killed. And uh, I didn't at the time set out to, you know, do anything in particular. It wasn't like, here's this tragic event and I must now do everything possible to stop it from happening to someone else. It actually was just kind of like this in its own way, a coping mechanism for me, you know, to, to actually be quite blunt. It was not about other people at first. It was probably about my sister, my relationship to her and what would get me through. And I found that at the time, particularly, you know, when the court process started, uh, and our interactions as a family with, with Victoria police began, there was a lot of, uh, you know, apprehension from myself, from my family, and a lot of um, a, a lot of distrust of the media, particularly because of the way that they uh, reported on on the case against Nikki's killer and the sorts of victim blaming narratives that we saw play out in the media, uh, the sorts of comments that that bred on Facebook. You know, like a news.com.au article uh, sensationalizing things about. Nikita and the days leading up to her uh, murder were somehow more important or more relevant for the public to hear about than the decision that her killer took to take her life. And that didn't sit right with me at just like a, like a core values level. It fundamentally didn't sit right with me. And so I, I started this kind of thing about speaking out about that. And I remember in February, 2015, uh, there was a, a Q&A special on domestic and family violence because that was the year that Rosie Batty was the Australian of the Year. And so it was in, you know, that brought the issue onto the front pages of the newspaper. And uh, and and there was a, a rugby player from New South Wales who spoke about being involved in an incident of domestic violence. And as it turns out that he had um, he had bashed his former partner within within an inch of her life, and she had sustained such horrible physical injuries, and and was struggling emotionally and psychologically and mentally as a consequence of the abuse and violence that she had endured and survived. And the best that this man could offer was that he was involved in a case of domestic violence, Sorry. and I didn't I didn't particularly like that language. You know, we talk about, or at least I talk about the use of words and things. And, and I can understand that, you know, not everyone wants to think things through to that same extent. And it's not necessarily um, the most pressing issue to think about which word to use in which particular situation. But I find things like I was involved in something kind of passing the buck a little bit. I thought, mate, it's not that you were involved. You're like the sole reason that you know, those injuries happen, you know, had you not hit her and bashed her um, or, or taken a glass bottle to her, she wouldn't have sustained those injuries. And I, I remember writing a, uh, an opinion piece that the newspaper had told me at the time, um, they said something like, it's very good, but I don't think we've got space to run it at the moment. Um, but knowing my personality and knowing who I am, that kind of rejection just spurs me to do more. Uh, it's not like, oh yeah, cool. Um, no worries. You don't have space. It's like, okay, I'm going to write 500 of these and your inbox is going to be flooded until you get one that you do publish. And so it started like that. It started with just this one episode of Q and a back in 2015, where it, it, it set off like this, um, light bulb for me of, 
oh, so what happened to my sister is happening a lot more than, than society sort of understands at the moment. And it's also something that uh, we're not talking about in the way that we probably should be, that men will say things uh, about uh, being perpetrators of violence or being bystanders and how it doesn't relate to them. And I'm, you know, very pro accountability, you know, and I'm very pro giving people an opportunity to grow, um, including perpetrators, you know, which is a conversation that sometimes people don't want to have. But, but for me, it's important to have those kinds of conversations. And so uh, I didn't like the way that that particular uh, individual presented his involvement in committing acts of domestic violence. And it, it mirrored the way that the man who killed my sister sort of acted about what he had done. And I thought, well, this isn't good enough for me. I, and I, I have, you know, I have enough going for me that I can speak out about it. And so I did. And, you know, five and a half, almost six years on uh, since Nikki's murder, I guess I just kind of keep going. Um, I've had little bits of time in there where I haven't done anything related to this. But more or less, I think you just become sort of... Uh, not desensitized, but you, you sort of become motivated, I think, to, to ensure that it doesn't happen to others. And it's happening to upwards of, of uh, 70 women a year, you know, since Nikki was killed uh, in the same, same or similar circumstances. And so it's clearly not something that's um, just an isolated incident. It's happening a lot. Uh, and, and that's homicide, right? So there's so many different examples of it across the spectrum and i just think that if we're going to make any progress on it as a society then we need to uh, put ourselves in a position where we're having conversations around who does it what causes it what are the drivers of that behavior and then and then assessing it properly and actually responding to it as a whole of society issue rather than just something that's dealt with after the fact within the criminal justice system um, because the the sad reality for my family is that you know, Nikki was 23 when she died and that's her life that, you know, she won't get to live out. And, and so I, I really, I'm really driven to ensure that that doesn't happen to other families. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, you, you said so much gold there, Tarang. Um, I guess I want to start with, if, if we go right back, Sorry, I haven't talked to many people because of. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's um, let's everybody hang out and be friends. Oh, you're you're doing an amazing job. Um, I also haven't talked to many people, so. The, the, yeah. the in my Myers Briggs personality type is like just pinging. Pinging. Like, yeah, like drug reference, like like, uh, like it's just like it's yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. I'm like, I just want to, like, what's social distancing? Why don't we all just hug each other? Like, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Except the sad thing is we're over Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess, I guess the place um, I wanted to start is right further back. Um, yeah, right. When you were a kid. Um, okay. So how do you... How do you remember Nikki and you as kids? Oh, what a great question. We were, it feels cliche to say like we were like any other brother and sister, but every, what I've learned since Nikki's death is that every sibling relationship, regardless of gender, is so unique. Uh, some siblings can be a year apart and they consider themselves so, uh, you know, so unalike, so different and they don't hang out at all and they have no shared interests and they never spend time together. Nikki and I were uh, four years apart and uh, we, but we spent a lot of time together. We, you know, we grew up in, initially we shared a bedroom and then we, you know, once I was like six or something, we, we didn't anymore. And then uh, we just grew up side by side uh, as, as brother and sister. And I just remember feeling really, really proud of her as like an elder brother, she was someone who um, didn't, you know, I'm from an Indian background and she didn't follow the kind of conventional path at all of um, what she chose to do in life. She um, ultimately, when she finished school, she decided to be a performing artist and choreographer and she studied performing arts at university after doing accounting for a year and absolutely hating it. And so 
from my perspective, having someone in the family who was so uh, passionate about something that was unconventional, you know, for first generation migrants from, from India or South Asia was something that was really important to me because particularly in sort of my advocacy work and, and the things that I do now speaking out about racism and cultural stereotyping and things like that is an understanding that within our own communities, we have this, you know, we have these self-imposed sort of ideas of what success looks like. And so for, for Nikki to go and kind of create her own path in that and do so quite successfully considering how old she was, uh, was pretty, um, was pretty cool. And something that I felt really proud of, particularly at the time that she died, because I was, um, I was sort of unsure of what I wanted to do. And I kind of had that late twenties, uh, existential angst about what am I going to do with my life? I don't really enjoy my job. Uh, I mean, I mean, what were you doing at the time? Uh, I worked in, um, creative agency, like marketing and advertising. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. You know, um, I certainly didn't think it would be like uh, mad men or anything, but I did, I did think it would be, uh, more engaging or more stimulating, but all it, all it really ended up being was like disgruntled clients, you know, asking why the ads that they wanted made weren't the ones that we were recommending for them. And it was really just, it felt really run of the mill and I didn't really feel happy. And I, I did um, so many diverse things at university and I kind of felt like I wasn't getting an opportunity to apply any of the things that I'd learned or think outside the box. And I felt almost constrained in a way um which feels strange to say or admit to because i was in a um arguably in a creative industry but certainly very commercially driven so it just felt it didn't feel true to sort of my my sense of self and i guess that's a reflection of like growing up with um with my sister nikki is that she was a real kind of creative spirit and someone who taught me i think the importance of trusting your gut instincts and, and um, the fact that for her, uh, there, there was, she was able in her own unique way to rationalize gut instincts, like in a way where like she would trust her gut, but she'd rationalize it in a way where it was what felt right. Um, and the other, the other sort of lesson that I, I really learned from her was as cliche as it sounds, kindness. Um, because I don't think I'm nearly as kind an individual as she was during her life. I think um, I have a long way to go, but she was without question one of the kindest people I've ever known, like genuinely kind. And I remember that like when she died, the outpouring of collective grief from family, friends and the community and strangers who'd met her once or twice was that she'd left this indelible mark on their life because of her sort of, I'm not, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in God. I'm not sure, but like her, like a spirit almost like she had a, a sense of a positive goodwill in how she approached people. But like, our, our, I mean, our childhood was, was normal. Um, and by normal, I mean, well, she copied me a lot. She wanted to do, initially she wanted to do everything that I did the way that, often people do with their elder siblings. So um, for a time, she was a little bit tomboyish until she found her own sort of interests, um, which meant football in winter, cricket in summer. Um, but if you're migrant, then it's homework in summer and winter. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we just kind of, yeah, we just like lived a pretty, pretty normal suburban life. Um, it, like we got bullied a fair bit i didn't like it when nikki got bullied and i sort of had that protective elder brother streak um but i couldn't fight you know like i didn't i didn't know how to um but then i went off to um a different school and and nikki stayed at the same school and then she went to an all-girls school after that and um yeah we had that period as teenagers where we were tight but we didn't talk to each other you know um I don't know, you go through that period where it's like, get out of my room, stay away from me. Um, but then you're, you know, the love's still there. And then, uh, yeah, and then, and then, you know, her late teens and into her early 20s, we sort of resumed from where we were when we were like 12 or 13. But there was like three or four years in between where um, 
you know, I was her older brother and I was uncool and she didn't want to be seen around me. Or if I had to pick her up from the bus stop, she'd be like, park around the corner. I don't want my friends to see you and all of that. Uh, but the sad, I guess the sad thing for me is that um, 23 is an adult, but it's still so young. You know, I'm 33 now. And I think back to who I was when I was 23. And I thought I knew everything and I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. Like I look at um, photographs of me and I reflect on where I was at the time. And I just think you moron, you were the biggest idiot in the world, but you thought you knew everything. And I didn't. And I think so many of us go through that, or at least I tell myself that so many of us go through that. I'm not sure. Um, you're both psychologists. So I'm almost asking for validation at the moment. Like do people go through that? Is that a thing? I've got this theory that uh, when, when you hit 24, it's um, you get through that period where usually there's a, there's a life event or something that um, triggers some, some form of change, some sort of psychological manipulation. Yeah, right. um, but I, I was, I think it's, it's really interesting that you say you look back, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I think, I think that would be very common. I think that um, you get to that point when you know it all until you don't and you get, you know, you land on your face and you realize you need to rebuild and yeah. then, you know, you become you become the person you've always meant to be, I suppose. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't know. It's, I find it so fascinating because my 20s were uh, a weird time. I finished, uh, I finished university at 25 uh, and I was at university for like seven years. And I, and I then, uh, I then, after finishing, went on a holiday to Indonesia before starting work, full-time work. And I got really sick and I got better. But then when I came back, I kept getting really sick for like months at a time. And, uh, excuse me, I had to fly to Sydney to see like a, you know, a specialist who, uh, who was like the only one at the time, like dealing with like the kind of illness that I was suffering from. And uh, I got some weird like stomach bug that they didn't know much about. Oh. And, I, and I was really sick like throughout my mid to late 20s. And I wasn't even fully better when Nikki was killed. So it was really strange because it was like this thing was already happening for me. But then this incredibly chaotic and uh, frankly fucked up thing happened, right, in the, the murder of my sister. Uh, am I allowed to swear? I just did. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, promote swearing. Okay, uh, I'm the wrong guy to tell that to. And and, and I think uh, I think yeah that that happened, and and then it was literally like, what do I do with all of this? And then it was the stuff that I said that I didn't know what to do with it. And then I saw just through watching an episode of television that hang on, this is happening a lot. And then I made it a responsibility. Um, not a goal, but a responsibility to learn as much as I could. And one of the things that upsets me about our nation in Australia is this idea that we are quite liberal in many ways. Uh, you know, one can walk down the street and, and dress quite freely. You know, we're, we're kind of um, relatively accepting, at least in Melbourne, of, of, you know, physical difference and things like that. We have a long way to go, but we're certainly not as judgmental as other parts of the world. And I think sometimes that gives us a false sense of security and a false sense of our understanding of how accepting we really are when I don't think we actually are nearly as accepting as, as we'd like ourselves, as we'd like to think ourselves to be. And I think that's, that scares me because sometimes we can think that we're doing great when we're actually really not. You know, I talked about how, mm. so like the, the year that Nikki was killed, uh, 85 other women were killed in the same way. Um, so it's it's sort of like fuck you know like that's 85 other families in the space of a year that are having the same interaction with the police that are going through the court process that are uh you know listening to a judge put a number of years on a prison sentence for a killer all of this stuff that just you know has this long term psychological impact on them um and obviously the loss of, of human life. So it's just the ripple effects is something that, I don't know, I find it difficult to talk about sometimes because it's like, how do I make sense of it? Yeah, it's like you, you can't even put words to how ghastly it is. Yeah, and how do I explain it to someone else? Like it's, it, you, I, yeah, like I've talked to people about it before and um, sometimes it feels hard to explain it. Like, 
Mm. It feels hard to explain like, mur- because murder is such a, the, the profound nature of it that someone makes a choice to take another human's life is, is really, I mean, it, it, it prompts you to think about like anything and everything, you know, like cancer is kind of different, like horrible and awful, but kind of different. Cause it's like, well, who do you blame for that? An accident, you know, accidents occur, they're awful and people live with guilt and shame from them and all this stuff, you know, and that's not to minimize every, anyone's experience. It's all, um, you know, can be quite awful, but there's something about murder where it makes it different or un- unique in its own way, you know? And, and I, like, I guess I, I had to find a way to come to terms with, um, with the guy who did this, the man who did this and find a way to compartmentalize that, I guess, for myself. And Tarang, um, we were having a brief discussion before we started recording about how society likes to view perpetrators of domestic violence as separate from us. You know, it's it's like they're these monsters uh, that we don't talk to, we're not friends with, um, they, they sort of don't function well in society, they probably don't have a job, they're just like in these dark alleyways waiting to murder someone. Um, and and we talked about how how wrong and not only how wrong but how damaging that stereotype is um how do you and and this might be painful to talk about but how do you remember nikita's uh, partner at the time um yeah i mean i don't i don't think about him much or at all like i mean i think about him right now in this moment because we're having a conversation but i i think i found a way to just not think about him you know i i i well and i mean if we want to talk about how i got there i read a lot of um i actually found philosophy to be very beneficial like i read a lot of like stoic philosophy and stuff like that and i and uh, i found that it helped me like put to one side like any thoughts about him or his existence um and and purely because like we have a finite i guess amount of processing power and our brains can only handle so much and i was like well if i spend my time thinking about him and get burnt out thinking about him i guess i made a i guess i made a a pact with myself where it was like you know yourself terrain you're going to uh probably work yourself into the ground do you want to work yourself into the ground doing stuff you're passionate about or do you want to work yourself into the ground uh, not, uh, you know, thinking about him? Uh, and I guess the, the healthiest way would be to just not work oneself into the ground. But that was like, I took that as a given, like that's going to happen. That's definitely going to happen. Uh, probably need to talk to a psychologist about that. But if I'm going to like do something, how can I kind of approach it? And so when I think about him, it's rare now, uh, but it's like, I guess you said, Maddie, um, and that conversation we were having earlier, that they're so normal, you know, and I find it, um, that's perpetrators, that is, and I find it really, um, I think it's really pertinent, a really pertinent time to have that conversation uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, we've seen a rise in domestic abuse and domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. and so when everyone's been in lockdown, you know, in different parts of the world and particularly in Melbourne where I live, we've had, we've had one of the longer lockdowns in the world and we've seen a rise in domestic violence figures. Now the men perpetrating this violence are not monsters. They're not some kind of anomaly. They're just men who are following the government regulations of being in lockdown with their female partners and their children and their families. So they're men that you'd normally see in the shopping center or in workplaces or at sporting clubs. So I think it helps people to understand that they're pretty normal. Other things going on for me in terms of this is that we recently had Halloween, right? And there's all this kind of conversation now around protecting children from strangers. But statistically, uh, and it's important, obviously, but statistically, children are most likely to be harmed uh, and please fact check this if I'm wrong, because I don't want listeners to 
take this as, as gospel if it's not true at all. But my understanding is that statistically, uh, children are most likely to be harmed by people known to them, like yeah, family, friends or, yeah, yeah, family friends or, you know, yeah. teachers or someone in a position of trust, mm-hmm. you know. Usually um, family members. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's, I mean, and that's sort of arguably the ultimate betrayal of trust, right? Mm. So that's that around children. And then the other one is that uh, screen legend uh, Sir Sean Connery died recently and I had no idea until he died that he had made comments condoning, minimising, excusing and actually encouraging men to hit their partners when they don't listen to them. It, it sort of, it's telling that, uh, that one of the, the greats of cinema you know, who's played an iconic character in James Bond can speak so openly and candidly about how to deal with domestic disputes, you know, with a female partner that, you know, and in physical, quite physical terms, you know, about he actually said something along the lines of, you know, it's okay to hit a woman, not the way you'd hit a man, but you can hit a woman in your own way, you know, Um, probably not with a fist, but with an open hand. And so it's, there's no ambiguity around what he said and what he's condoning. And I just think, I think it's so important for people to understand that perpetrators of, of violence uh, who overwhelmingly are male, regardless of the gender of the victim, can look like anyone. They can look like anything. You know, so I think there's this conversation around what do these men look like and who are they? And they come from many different walks of life. Uh, sometimes there are some class divides, I think, you know, in terms of. Uh, how they perpetuate the violence or how they try to exercise power and control. You know, I think, I think sometimes we might see more physical acts of violence from uh, men of certain socioeconomic backgrounds and certain demographics. But then we see, you know, if we, if we in inverted commas, white collar criminals who engage in, in acts of power and control with their families around finances. And I think that we need to have conversations around all of that, you know, and all of how power and control is, uh, is exercised and who it sits with, you know, and, 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 that, and I think that will bring us to a point where we can look at this holistically and we can actually make some progress towards eradicating the problem. You know, it's not as simple as creating refuges for women. That's vital and important, but it's not going to solve the problem. You know, it's a band-aid. You know, it's a band-aid, you know, and it's, and unfortunately it's, too, it's often too late. You know, even if, uh, even if the people who escape overwhelmingly women and, and their children survive, sometimes their lives are a shell of what they were before or what they could have been, you know? And so I think that it's so key that we do the work to, to actually solve the core issue. And I think this, this happens across all different, you know, social movements. This year we've seen the rise of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, at least within Australia. Like it's, it's sort of started to take a bit more hold after, you know, um, so many Indigenous deaths in custody over many, many years. And we've seen conversations around that issue. We've seen conversations around defunding the police. And I find it interesting because I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, that People hear defund the police and they get kind of scared. But what unfortunately isn't explained to those people is that it's not that police won't exist anymore. It's that let's say there's a $3 billion budget for uh, police. You know, we're now going to shift $1 billion of that budget away from police, but put it in mental health and education and healthcare and actually get to the cause of these issues rather than simply uh, putting it at the band-aid where a crime has occurred and someone comes and puts handcuffs on another person. It's, it's so interesting you mentioned that, Tarang, um, because I don't know if you know, actually you don't know because we didn't speak about it before we started recording, but Jason's backstory. Yeah, uh, Tarang, um yeah, I was a, a police officer um, twice over, to, over the last 10 years. Um, and why did you leave the police? Yeah, yeah very, very much. Your, your last statement about um, 
the the reactiveness of of policing. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of waiting and a lot of um, the prevention methods um, that police employ are just are just not there. Um, uh, I was I was actually part of the domestic violence team um, when I was in WA, and this was probably 2010, and we the, the the amount of calls that we would get per day, especially in the area that I was um, working at the time, um, it would be five six calls of re repeat repeat calls. Usually, um, we would get to the scene and there would be a retraction um, uh, from the person involved. Um, and often it would be any, any, anywhere from physical violence to, to financial violence um, to just um, sort of atypical manipulation. And our powers were very limited. Um, we, we weren't able to do much other than um, provide, you know, often just a, a number to call to, directly to the station. Um, and many of the occasions, um, which I saw more later on when I w worked into a more, to more the domestic violence sort of response team away from the police, you know, you, you do learn that, that, that people, females, women are being, are being murdered and the, the change that occurs within the police culture is, it, it, it's like the, there's no shift there. There's, there's, there's no change. It's, it's if they, there's complete cognitive dissonance between the role as a police officer and, and violence and being able to do anything about it. Um, and it sort of made me think about um, your sister's um, story. What was your sort of... Um, uh, so, as what was your experience or memory of the police involvement? Um, maybe the call that you got from family members. Can you take us back to the actual day, if you can, Terry? Yeah, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, firstly, like I, I didn't know that about you at all, Jason. And I think that yeah, it's um, must have been really difficult to like, I guess set on a path to go into the police force and then go, hang on a minute. This is like, this is, I, I have certain passions and interests and, and I have an aptitude for this, but the way things are being done, it doesn't sit right with my values and I need to go and do something else. So yeah, thank you for sharing that, I guess. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I remember like, I remember when Nikki was killed, uh, it was, it was, uh, the start of the year, like the very start of the year. And she was the first person killed in Victoria, uh, first woman killed in Victoria that year. And maybe the first person, because uh, it was just at the start of the year. And so it was, we, we hadn't, we hadn't had time, I guess, as, as a society to even start breaking new year's resolutions. Like it was like one week into the year. And uh, I remember I was meant to go back to work uh two days or three, sorry, three days after she was killed and, uh, and she was murdered overnight. And I remember I lived in an inner city apartment at the time. And I remember my parents drove from uh, our family home. We grew up in, in Bentley. Uh, and, and I remember they drove from there after Victoria police told them the news. And I just find it, I actually can't fathom that, this was allowed that, you know, that Victoria police let my parents get behind the wheel of a car because we talk about like how different traumas can impact on the brain. And yet my dad drove, you know, 20, 25 minutes um, from the Bayside suburbs of Melbourne into the inner city. Uh, first thing in the morning, uh, just before peak hour traffic and, and, uh, they and I, I remember waking up with my doorbell ringing and just thinking, "Oh fuck, who is this?" Like, because I lived in an apartment complex and a couple of the neighbours had their own AOD issues, and so it was kind of a common occurrence that someone would come and ring the doorbell or do something. And I remember just being really frustrated initially, and then it was my parents and my mum, you know, had tears streaming down her face, and my dad was like just completely like 
shell shocked and they uh, walked in and they just told me that, yeah, he's, he's killed her. And that was it. And then my mum just collapsed and, uh, and, and my dad gave me a business card and it had a detective senior sergeant's phone number on it. And the local police had delivered the news. Uh, and then I called the homicide squad at 9am and they basically, it was so clinical. They were just, they just talked me through everything that happened. I think once he, you know, the detective senior sergeant said, I'm sorry for your loss. And then we kind of got shuffled through the system. You know, there was a caseworker, not from the police who comes to your house. Uh, and, and they, uh, uh, first out, first I moved back in with my parents, uh, immediately. Uh, but I remember one thing I remember that day of the day that Nikki died is that I hadn't done the dishes from the night before. And I lived in an older apartment, which didn't have a dishwasher. And so they were, they're starting to pile up in the sink. And my mum, my mum looked at them and said, Oh, can I help you do the dishes? And then she went and did them. And it was the strangest thing. And I still find it so odd that like her, her only daughter had been murdered and yet she was still looking out for her other child. And it was like, she did it like, and it wasn't like, yeah, she's like peacefully did it and then like made a cup of tea. And it was just, it was so surreal in that moment because the mundaneities of everyday life were still happening. And for me, I went back to work quite quickly and I remember sitting in a meeting and just walking out and bursting into tears a few weeks later. And that's when I took an extended break of time from work because I just knew that everyone else's life hadn't changed in the way that mine had. And so it wasn't necessarily fair of me to expect them to understand what I was going through. Uh, but I couldn't deal with their problems, you know, and it sounds a little conceited and arrogant, but I was just like, fuck this, like this, this actually doesn't matter at all. Uh, but I, I mean, I think I felt the same when the day Robin Williams died, I remember sitting at work and, uh, and uh, people were just going about their day. And I just remember thinking, but Robin Williams died. Like, why, why aren't we talking about that? You know, this, this incredible human being, has just died, but we're, we're just talking about sales figures. Like mm. who cares? Um, and so for me, like when this was happening, I remember thinking, Oh wow. Like I'm, I'm not okay. I, I need to remove myself from this situation. And then I think I took six months and ultimately around a year off, almost a year off work. And during that time I started doing advocacy stuff. So in its own way, it was a coping mechanism. It was a way to, I had to fill the time somehow. And I did it through the more conventional things of going to therapy and talking to somebody. But I had to sort of, I had to do something with my brain. Otherwise I would have driven myself crazy. And so I did this, you know, and then, and then I, I can remember like the, the moment of finding out like it was yesterday. It's really strange. Uh, it's so strange. Like it was it was like really warm that day, like a really kind of dry heat. And then the, the weekend after was so warm. Um, and so, yeah, we found out on the Friday when she died. And then the Saturday, all these family friends descended on our home. And one of my dad's best friends actually, cause we sent out a message saying, please don't come over. Like we just need some breathing space. And my dad's best friend was like, I'm going. And his wife was like, no, you're not. And he's like, well, who's going to stop people from going in? And that was like his way of helping was just like literally being a bouncer at the front door of our home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the media had found out about where we live and they wanted to get a scoop and someone gave them my phone number. So channel seven and nine news started ringing me every 20 minutes. And I guess it's this whole thing. Like it, you, you, you almost, uh, move on from it or you get over it and you forget about it. But in terms of talking to you both about it now, you remember just how, just how much is going on in, in that, you know, couple of days immediately after. And then you get a, you get a caseworker assigned. And I mean, I almost laugh about it now, but like, I think they've come a long way since, but the person that we got was just so like, I think they had their own compassion fatigue and burnout because they just gave some brochures and they were like, sorry for your loss. Here are some brochures. And it was just, it was the weirdest thing. Cause it was like, okay, what do I do with them? You know? Uh, and that was that. Uh, yeah. 
but I, I, I it really, it, it's made me reflect a lot on how we, how we view grief and how we expect people to process grief. And what I, what I mean by that is that I remember the first time we went to the shopping center, mom, dad, and myself after Nikki died. And it was, I think like five months after, and we went to get dad a jacket and we saw some people in Meyer or David Jones, something like that. And they didn't know how to react to us. And mum was joking about something with dad. And it was really strange because I think mum was laughing and they were like expecting her to be a certain way. Yeah. Or act a certain expecting way. Expecting her not to be at David Jones. Yeah. yeah. But also it was almost like they were judging her. Mm. And I didn't like that because it was like, well, you know, she's already lost a child. She can kind of like, if she's going with her husband shopping, like it's not, not a crime. Like mm. she's not doing anything negative. Uh, but it's strange. I think, I think as a society, we, when it comes to things like murder or, or deaths from any kind of violence, we don't know how to process them. And, we, and we're so reluctant to have conversations. You know, like I think about how different cultures around the world approach death. And I think ours in, you know, our Anglo culture here doesn't necessarily like talking about death at all, you know, and it's sort of like almost like a taboo topic. And so when it does occur, uh, everything that comes with death, loss and grief and other things, we don't talk about it at all. Like it's just like a non-thing. Yeah. And so no one knows how to process it and no one I think understands enough. And I put myself in this category, especially before Nikki died of knowing how to, uh, how to respond to it. You know, like you expect there to be like a certain way to do it. And there are, there are guidebooks on how to grieve and there are like the stages. I don't know if there's like five or more. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but yeah, it just, it's weird, right? Like it's so weird how, People expect it to follow a path, but well, it doesn't. the stages, like I think Jason and I have joked about it before because we've had a lot of um, episodes about death and how people have processed it. It's, it's almost a bit of a, a joke that you're meant to section it into these neat stages and then you graduate from one and then you're on to the next, you know, you're out of denial and it's like it, yeah. it's, it's so... It's, yeah. it's cl- I, I like the word you used before, clinical. Yeah. I mean, like, let's box it up. <laughs> yeah. And it never yeah. works because human beings yeah. are so complicated, you know, human beings are so, uh, but that's what's beautiful about us is that we are, we are so inherently complex. And so there is no, there very rarely is like a one size fits all approach, but I feel like that's what we try to apply to so many settings is like, you know, when it comes to the criminal justice system, it's a very one-size-fits-all approach. Um, there is, you know, and so as a victim's family, there's no sense of individuality in that process. Your uh, the, the whole process itself, the way that it's structured, is that you're not you're not involved. You know, technically, you're not involved. It's the state that brings the charges against the perpetrator. So you're just mm. there. You know, and then they give you an opportunity to make a victim impact statement. But I remember them saying to my parents that half of what you've written to my mom, half of what you've written, Mrs. Chawla, actually isn't admissible as evidence. And then I'd studied a law degree, so I had to explain to mom how to do it and then sat with her next to her while she rewrote it and rewrote it. And it makes me think that we we need to find better ways to do things because I can't imagine how re-traumatizing that is for the parent of a murdered child to be told, oh, sorry, but what you've said isn't admissible in a court of law. And then here's a pamphlet about how to write it, go off and write it, you know? And so my mum's spoken publicly about this a little bit, that she says she would have felt lost if not for me knowing a bit more about the legal system. And so to be quite frank, I feel lucky. You know, I feel lucky that I had those opportunities to know a bit more. Because I've seen, I've seen and met families of people who've gone through that process and sometimes they're a bit hollow and I'm not surprised because I just think that what's worse than losing someone is the indignity of going through the system. Mm. And it's one thing that people are going through this cold system um, but another that they're doing that whilst trying to 
fucking survive through the worst day of their life. Um, how did you remember Terang? How did you guys respond in those first few weeks after Nikki's death? I think, uh, I think I would consider myself fairly lucky in that we have, we have a pretty good support network. And I think part of that is owing to who my sister was in life is that she was so giving of herself that other people were more than willing and more than ready to be there for us, you know? And and I think coming from a South Asian migrant background where there is a sense of community, that there was that kind of sense of community uh, around us. Uh, And also I get. I guess the the harsh reality is that we had no fucking idea. We were making it. We were literally making it up as uh, as we were going along. We we literally like you know myself, mum, dad. We we had no idea. I mean, we were we were all of a sudden uh, thrust into a situation where Nikki had died, which is. Uh, and then we were grieving, um, and which is, which, you know, is considered a pretty private thing. You know, people grieve in their own ways, but it's playing out in, a pu- in the public eye because whenever there's a court hearing, it's in the newspaper, um, online, uh, and, and so there's, and there's also an appetite for it. You know, there's true crime is such a huge uh, industry, you know, on Netflix and Stan and Amazon and, and everywhere, right? So it's like people are obsessed with that. Uh, and uh, and I am too, I guess. So, uh, yeah, it's. I don't even know how to to answer it because we were just making it up as we go along. We didn't know. Like you get you get heaps of advice though. You get heaps of unsolicited advice, and I wouldn't even be able to share with you what it is because it's honestly, it starts with in one ear and out the other until it becomes not even going in one ear. Like just turn yourself off from listening to unsolicited advice. I remember seeing a few psychologists that year uh, and then finding one that I clicked with and, and he was fantastic. He was like a a man in his mid to late seventies. It felt like talking to a grandfather, uh, but with, uh, you know, multiple degrees and years of clinical experience. So he knew what he was talking about uh, in a, in a, uh, a healthcare setting, which is obviously paramount, but he was able to do it in a way where it was so plain language that it didn't feel like you're talking to somebody who's there to diagnose you or there to treat you, but somebody who's actually just there to help you. Uh, and he would, and and he would actually talk almost as much as me, which as I'm thinking about this podcast seems unbelievable because I've just been talking the whole time, but no, uh, that's, that's what we encourage. <laughs> Okay. We don't want to hear our own voices. Yeah, right. So he, but he like, he was so great in terms of expanding the way that I think about, uh, thought about things and, and expanding, uh, sort of my ability to cope with, with, uh, with what was going on. Uh, and, and I feel indebted to him that I had that, um, that I had someone like that, but I, I think I saw like four psychologists before I got to see him and, uh, each one sort of, compounded to feel worse than the last one you know um and i think part of it was that i was not coping and i remember sitting down and the first psychologist you know he was like so how can i help you and i just remember thinking well my sister was fucking murdered so how about you tell me like how you can help me because i don't know uh it just and i mean i guess i guess that's something that they ask in a clinical setting but it just sometimes can feel so yeah clinical and so lacking in humanity and i sometimes wonder are there better ways to do this and there must be better ways to do this you know they don't have to pretend to be your friend but isn't there something that they can say that makes it feel less like less like you're just there for 50 minutes and then they never think about you again you know while you're going through this uh you know which maybe is maybe my own problem that i shouldn't be looking for validation from them but uh, but I don't know. Like I remember when I when I saw this particular psychologist, uh, yeah, and he was. I mean, he was in every way like a grandpa. Like I think he, I think he smoked from a pipe. Like in between sessions, like he just, he was almost like a caricature of what you'd what 
what you'd picture him to be. And he had like white hair, like Tintin almost, and little beard. Now that I'm describing him, he sounds a bit like Kevin Rudd. But he he just... It was actually Kevin Rudd. No, it wasn't Kevin Rudd. Uh, he he was just so um, so empathetic in his own way, and I think I think life experience had taught him a, a thing or two along the along the journey and along the way. So he was able to put things into context and share actual events of his own. Like you know, I think one of his grandchildren had died young, and so he was just he just talked about that with me, you know, and what he did, and it was so like it felt personal you know and it felt like it felt like when you know people say when they have a friend that they rely on for something and they can talk to them about anything it felt like that you know like you bridge the gap between the two people and you actually both leave feeling better um and then shortly after he retired and um and then i didn't see a psychologist and i see a different one now but he's fantastic and it's it's a similar dynamic so i guess i found what works for me and I guess for everybody, it's about finding what works. Um, and for me, I need like a, you know, I, I found that I need someone who has been around a bit, seen a bit and can just talk to me a bit more like in an open way and help help me to kind of get to the answer, you know. Um, but also also can just be like, tell me off when I need it as well. Just be like, no, this is wrong. Um and these are all the ways in which you are currently behaving like a douchebag and you need to fix this. And I believe in your ability to do that, you know? So yeah, I'm a difficult patient. What can I say? You mentioned you were looking for answers. What, what answers do you think you were looking for? When I saw the psychologist, Mm. I guess at the time I was trying to find a sense of closure, you know, like, the, the question of why was was prominent in my mind, Jason. The question of why did someone do this? Why Nikki? Why my family? Why me? Why now? And uh, I, I don't, I never got the answers. And I came to peace with not knowing the answers. And I'm sure someone else has said it before, so I can't claim it as my own. But... I discovered that my sort of my principle around any life event now is that more, more answers doesn't lead to more closure. It just leads to further questions, at least for my personality type. Like if I, if I ask a question and then someone answers it, you know, if I'm like, well, why did this happen? And then they give me an explanation. I will ask another why question after that. And so as you can tell, it's probably a pretty annoying child. But so I asked, like, I had a lot of questions, right? And so for me, I had to come to terms with the fact that particularly, you know, if someone dies prematurely, regardless of the circumstances, you're not going to know everything. And that's not that it's okay, like, get over it, but it's okay, like, that's life. Like, that happens and it's okay. You're not going to know everything and you're not going to get closure in the way that you think. And I, and I talk about this a lot in the context of, people who go through breakups, you know, like um, particularly because Nikki died in the context of separation, many women die in the context of separation. And the act of taking someone's life is, you know, in the context of separation is almost a way of having the final word. You know, it's like, I'm going to have the final say. I decide the terms of this. You know, and I, my approach to, to relationships and breakups you know, which I thought about as a result of looking for answers, you know, like why, why do men do this? Why do, why do men so frequently kill in the context of separation? And so for me, it was like, I need to understand this for myself. And, and so I, I developed the view, I think, as a consequence of that, that if someone didn't want to be with you, well, okay, cool. Why would you want to be with them? Like, I couldn't think of anything worse than like being with you know, then, then trying to force someone to like you or to respect you. Um, and so that's what I arrived at in terms of myself. And I guess I was looking for answers as to like, why would someone do this to not just to Nikki? Like it, why did this happen to Nikki was the first question, but then why would anyone do this at all? Because it's so foreign to me. Like it's so foreign. It's like, if someone's like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. I'll be like, okay. Oh, like, why would I like, 
I can't convince you of that. Like if someone's like, I don't, you know, and, and we hear about it in, in terms of um, violence against women and, and dating and other things where women will say things uh, about having to give reasons to men where they're like, I'm not, in, you know, at a bar, they'll say, I'm not interested. And then the guy will be like, why? I'm a nice guy. Or they'll use the excuse, I've got a boyfriend. Yeah. It's like being a relationship is the only acceptable reason that you can reject the guy. You have to protect his feelings that much that you, you're going to lie. Yeah. And I, and I think about that a lot, that like I think as men we we live in concert with women, we live around them, uh, but but women have have this responsibility that has been put on them, on their shoulders, uh, which we have to correct the imbalance of, that they have to mind men's feelings, you know? And it's not like that's a free pass for women or anybody of any gender um, identity to uh, to treat people like shit. Like, it's not like a free pass or anything. But there is a, a an imbalance, I would argue, you know, across all of society, across all of Western society, uh, that, that women have to mind the feelings of men. You know, women have to worry about the feelings of men in terms of rejection in particular. Uh, and, and what happened to Nikki is at the, the pointy, very extreme end of that, that, that she rejected a man and he stabbed her 35 times with a meat cleaver. Um, that, that was like, that was, and to him, that was warranted and acceptable. And he didn't show any remorse. And the judge commented on that, that he thought it was okay. Uh, and, and clearly enough men think it's okay to do that, which, which uh, isn't a problem of law. People talk about how, oh, we need to be, you know, we, de- we need to have stronger laws against murder. Murder is, most people know that killing another person is wrong, right? Most people don't, like, that's almost self-evident that you don't kill another person. But enough, enough men in society think it's okay to take the life of their female partner because they're somehow below them, you know? And so that, that, equality between the two of them doesn't exist and so for me like there, there was it was just finding answers to all of these questions it was making it was making sense of the world again because what happened shook the foundations and the bedrock of the way my parents had raised me you know they had a very kind of equal relationship they had their dramas everyone does but they they treated each other with respect uh, you know that certainly i've never i've never seen my parents either one be physically um violent towards one another like i've just it never happened um i'm pretty sure they've yelled at each other but you know like it just yeah it, it just i think um shook my idea of what was normal and i so i had i had so many questions and and i guess where i ultimately arrived at was a sense of not closure but acceptance like that this happened, that it was wrong, that it was not my fault. It was not Nikita's fault. It was not anyone in my family's fault. It was not her friend's fault. It was, it was no one's fault other than the choice of the person who made the decision to kill her. You know, and I think that that's, that's something that we all as a society are kind of have to, I think we should do when it come, when whenever these statistics are, are brought to us, that, that we, stop looking at victim blaming and we stop thinking about, oh, she provoked him or she led him to it and think, but hang on, like, why, why would he do that? Like what, in what way was it acceptable? You know, cause it's too easy. It's too easy to say, oh, he had a mental health problem or he was crazy, you know, or say that someone who does that must be mentally sick or mentally unwell. Yeah. I guess that's self-evident, but it's more than that. It's, it's, there's something, there's something going on there. And and I think that a lot of these conversations make people uncomfortable um, because we often have to self-reflect, you know, like I have to self-reflect on like who I am and who I want to be in my own relationships. And it requires, I think it requires a degree of work uh, as well and effort. Uh, and, and so it's difficult. So I was looking, I was looking for answers to, to, to just so many questions, um, just, just making sense of it um, and making sense of what to do out of this just clusterfuck of emotions following this one choice that, that another person made that had um, final consequences for my sister and then lifelong consequences for everyone close to her. 
the victim blaming. Why, why do you think that's the preference for people, for society to, to um, employ or want to know an understanding on, on the victim and, um, you know, not, not try to address or try to seek answers for the reasons why the perpetrator may have done what they've done? Yeah, right. What a fascinating question. I, I, I mean, I wish I knew the answer. I can, I can share my opinions if mm. that helps, but I mean, I don't know, like, theoretically why, but I, I guess from my perspective, uh, it, it, it comes down to a few things. Primarily, the status quo, like, that's the way it's always been. You know, we, we only more recently have been in a society that is being more open around challenging the narrative of victim blaming. You know, there were, when women were being raped and sexually assaulted and, and such violence was occurring in the streets over many decades, well, firstly, it wasn't reported um, or it was assumed that women deserved it. Then when it started being reported, I think it, it uh, was put on her, like, why was it occurring? And, and I think part of it, part of it is rooted in, in um, patriarchy and misogyny and gender inequality. You know, the, the, when, when violence was occurring outside of the home, victim blaming occurred because the public domain was seen as a space for men. So if a woman was in that space and a man attacked her, the question arose, well, why was she in that space in the first place? And it was implied that um, that's a space for men, that that's, that's where men belong um, and it's a man's world and men can do and, and say and behave as they please and women are responsible for the actions of other people. So I think the status quo enabled that when it comes to public violence. And then I think when it comes to intimate partner violence and violence within the home, it's rooted in ideas of patriarchy and misogyny and the role of, of women and the role of women in the lives of the men who claim to love them. You know, and so women, you know, wives as servants and wives as caretakers for men, as opposed to, uh, you know, fully fledged functioning human beings in their own right. You know, and I, and I know it sounds somewhat reductive when I say this, because I think it challenges us to think about our own biases towards women. Um, but I, I mean, I like I'm 33. So I was raised in, you know, I grew up in the 1990s. And I think about everything that I, uh, all the media that I consumed and everything. And it's a, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant process to unpack uh, the gender inequality and the... Yeah, to unbrainwash yourself. Yeah, to, to kind yeah. of understand. And so, I mean, I'm talking a lot today, but to be quite frank, it involves a lot of listening to women and going, oh, so tell me about mm. it from your perspective. And it's like, whoa, like I've never thought about it like that. Like I remember when I first learned about how women would um, would text a friend when they're leaving a pub to go home they would keep their keys you know in their in between like each one of their fingers to protect themselves if they needed it uh they wouldn't have headphones in so that they had their senses and wits yeah, about them. i'll do that yeah. yeah yeah and they would they would text like three people like mm. so that they knew and they'll take all kinds of other like precautions they wouldn't walk through a park mm. and it's like it's like so many men so many straight men in particular are just like yeah i'm just gonna go walk through a dark alleyway and not worry about it Mm. not even think twice about it and and so i think the victim blaming is a, is a consequence of just deeply ingrained views about the role and space that women are allowed to occupy both in society and within the home uh and also also that it's it's been normalized for so long and i think now we're seeing a rise in in uh women not taking that shit anymore and and a proportion of men saying hang on we're all part of a collective effort to dismantle the structures that have led to it. Even if we're not um, the ones who put it in place that we can be, you know, play a sort of positive role in trying to dismantle it. Uh, but unfortunately some men take it to heart, you know, they, they really take it personally. Like if you, if you try to have a conversation about it, they start going, well, not all men do that. And it's, it's odd to me because it's like, well, no one said all men do. But yeah. if you take football as an example, right, at the end of a game, you don't start going and blaming individual players. The team, ultimately, the team loses, right? So 
it's kind of like men, like we're, if we're all on a team, well, a few of us are really letting the team down. So we've got to collectively do our bit to fix things. Mm. Hey, that wasn't a bad analogy. I should write that shit down. <laughs> on that note, Trang, I was, I was going to say, I just looked at the time. I think Maddie did too. And oh, that's fine. I, it's locked. No, and it's not lockdown. We're out of lockdown. <laughs> um, so on that note, I, I do, there, there is a series of questions that um, I've got sort of bubbling away, but it's probably more appropriate for, the, for, the, for a future, you know, take two, episode two, you know, um, you know, trying version two, that's probably where I'll, where I'll leave it in that sense um, because it sort of moves into a whole different space. Um but I did want to, on behalf of Maddie and I, I did want to thank you for, for spending so much time with us tonight and sharing everything you have. Um, of course, yeah. No, thank you yeah. for having me. And, uh, yeah, great to talk to both of you and, and um, you know, hear about the things a little bit. I would love to talk more and actually listen to both of you more and hear about what you've, um, what you've been working on. That was Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief, and hope. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.